All right. Welcome, everyone, to a new episode of the Roscoe's Wetsuit Podcast. I am with a very special guest today. We have James Fadiman on the show. James is a former president of the Institute of Noetic Sciences and a professor of psychology who's written textbooks, trade books, and novels. He's one of the foremost researchers in microdosing studies, the author of the Psychedelic Explorer's Guide, and is a co-founder of Sophia University, rooted in transforming the transpersonal. He has been researching healthy multiplicity for more than 20 years and lives with his filmmaker wife in Menlo Park, California. And uh, Jim was kind enough uh, to send me a new copy of his book, um, Your Symphony of Selves, which, uh, thank you for that. I really enjoyed the read, and I'm honored to have you on the show today, Jim. Well, I'm delighted to be on the show, and I'm, uh, yeah, I've been, I've watched a couple of your other shows, and I'm honored to be, you know, in the, in the group of kinds of people that you have. Oh, well, the, the feeling is mutual there. Um, so tell me a little, so your symphony of cells is kind of talking about, uh, kind of the idea of this, this multiplicity of cells that we, you know, maybe the idea that we are simply this one, uh, you know, isolated self is, is sort of an illusion. Um, yeah. and, and maybe we're actually kind of composed of all of these different selves and that actually might be sort of a healthy psychological thing not necessarily like a disorder is sort of what i got um out of the book so tell me a little about what how how this sort of theory how these ideas sort of came about for you well it's really been a couple of decades so where it started i'm not sure except through observation see one of the things about science is that when you see things the way they are you can't avoid, um, you can't turn that off. Once you've seen something, and I began to see that it was, it made more sense to think of ourselves as a multiplicity, even though we're, we're all in the same box. And as I started both reading and thinking and talking and having a family, it became a, a way of understanding that simply made more sense. And, and the central problem for assuming you're a single self is how do you deal with your own inconsistencies and one of the things that we know is you may not be aware of your inconsistencies but if you think of the people you're closest to you're terribly aware of theirs and you you just wonder is you know how could you have said that you you've always been so nice or you say to yourself, I don't know what got into me. Now that's this real statement, which is you just did something which another part of you is horrified about or ashamed or just amazed. Um, so that's the core. And if I, I can make it a very simple, simple question and you can answer it because you're answering it for everyone. Have you ever argued with yourself? Sure. Who is the other person in the argument? A different self. That's the obvious, okay? In fact, the problem for us in the book was it's so obvious, what's the point of writing a 400 plus pages book about it? And the answer is because there's another, there's a theory which, is, which doesn't have evidence, which overlays our real observations. And the theory is 
that you're a single unified self, no matter how little that makes sense. Um, and there's some historical reasons why we're, we're saying that. But the history of psychology actually is the other way. Early psychology was incredibly clear. The father of psychology is known as William James. Terribly clear that there were selves. He worked with some people in France, Charcot uh, and others. Terribly clear that there were selves. Uh, one, of, one of the students, one of Charcot's students, his name is Sigmund Freud. Early Freud, total awareness of selves. Then there was a historical shift. Freud changed all his theories for reasons we probably won't bother with. And we began to suppress the notion that we were selves. And so what we did in this book is simply say, if it's true that we're selves, then the evidence should be pretty evident everywhere. And so we've looked at philosophers and psychologists and neuroscientists and religious figures and religious traditions and pop music and poetry and fiction everywhere, there are selves. So it clarified suddenly why we behave in different ways. And the, the result of, of, the book, of people literally reading the book, and we're getting nice letters, they say, oh, I actually am becoming kinder to the people I live with, more tolerant of my kids' irregularities, and actually more compassionate. So that's a lot for a book. Right. Absolutely. I, I wanted to ask you, I guess, um, you know, what, what you sort of say about, you know, the, I, I think oftentimes there's a, a much more negative perception, you know, as you kind of address in the book of, of having kind of these different selves. And, you know, I've heard it described as, as sort of like masks, you know, in psychology where we're, we're wearing different masks and it's often sort of thought of as, as a, um, we're well, sort of being fake or we're, we're trying to be someone we're not. There's a whole pathology of having yourselves not in any kind of good harmony. And it's called disassociation, meaning separated. Now, if you think about it, um, if there's a word called disassociation, probably there's another word called association. And it turns out that association is the definition of a healthy personality, which is yourselves are appropriate to the situation. What, there's a phrase that, that we use called being in the right mind at the right time. That's mental health. So right now, for instance, you are not only running a kind of technological program and you're watching sound levels and whatever else you're doing, so part of you, there's a little bit of that kind of, um, kind of numerical science going on. Part of you is thinking, what's another good question that I can ask my guests, so this will be a really interesting podcast. And part of you is just responding. Those are parts of you are in harmony. They're working together. They're in good association. So this is a book that is not about mental illness. Yes, there is mental illness. And there's dozens of books about it. This is about what normal, what healthy looks like and how to both recognize it and, and, and improve it. 
Um, and we'll talk more about what happens when you slip into the wrong self. Yes, I'd love to. Yeah, because you gave illustrations in the book, um, I guess, of these sort of, I, I don't know the exact words you, you uh, phrased it as, but kind of these fractured selves where um, they're sort of being expressed kind of a, um, uh, what's the word? Um, they're kind of not, not being expressed properly. Yeah, um, they're coming in at the wrong time. Um, there's a, uh, we talk a lot about Herschel Walker, who is this um, fantastically amazing guy, okay? He's um, one of the great football players of all time, and he danced in a ballet, and he's run businesses. Um, he's just an amazing guy. But what he says, he says, you don't want Herschel, the football player, to be your babysitter. And he's saying that you've got to pick the right self and that his, among his genius is having, uh, for instance, he, he had a lot of pain early on in his, in his training when he wanted to be athletic. But he learned how to not be associated with the pain, which allowed him to continue training. And what we found in, in very successful people is that they often will talk about their selves. They may not use the exact term, but they're aware that um, you know, when Picasso is working on a painting, now Picasso is also very sexual, okay? But when he's working on a painting, he's working on a painting. And he doesn't want to be disturbed by his, his wonderful, attractive girlfriend. And when he's with his girlfriend, he doesn't want to paint. So it seems like there's, there's, a, there's sort of a healthy flexibility where, where someone can sort of shift between these different selves and there might be sort of problems arise if someone has difficulty shifting. Like I, I was just yeah. thinking of like the example of like, you know, first responders, police officers, um, you know, who can't really like shut that off. They go to work and are in this very like hypervigilant state and then they go home and, you know, they can't calm down and then they, you know, start drinking, drinking yeah. lots of alcohol, you know, where it's, it's, they're not really able to shift from that, you know, demanding hypervigilant state to, calm family mode. Well, actually, that's wonderful, because that's among our literally a thousand examples. We don't have that one. <laughs> but that's actually right on is the usually the problem is people are triggered. And we use the term very correctly into the wrong self. But you're pointing out is if you can't get out of your particularly out of your work self, and, and people whose business is to be hyper vigilant, um, it is hard. You know, you, you've, uh, my son-in-law had been a, a paramedic fireman for a number of years. And uh, when you're working in a burning building, you're hyper alert in ways that we can't really imagine. And turning that off is extremely difficult so that you can just be with someone. And so, you know, if, if, if we hear a sound, you don't suddenly flash. And, and I remember a friend of mine many years ago, we're walking along in a little res residential street and a car backfires a block away. He jumps. He moves about four and a half feet off the road. And I'm looking at him and he's looking at me like, what did I just do? And then he says, you know, when I was in Vietnam, 
that's what you did. And so the sound triggered his hyper alert Vietnam, you know, soldier in Vietnam capacity, which he hadn't lost. And, but he was totally aware that, you know, when we were walking around in suburbia, a bunch of guys, um, it didn't make sense. So we, we, what you try and learn in yourself is what triggers you that you can watch out for and how do you learn to shift in a way that you prefer so that when you come home from a hard day of whatever your work is and your small children say, Daddy, I want to play with you, um, you don't treat them like your work people. You shift literally, and it's interesting if you think about it, most parents will shift their language. They'll shift literally the tone of their voice, uh, even more so even with pets. But they will shift into a much more, a much younger uh, voice pattern. And they will use little silly words that they wouldn't use usually. And so that's a healthy shift. And then after the kids are in bed and you're with your wife or your partner, you shift again. And so all had children know what it's like when the kids are down and then there's this shift point where, whoa, there are adults in the room. How, uh, how conscious are most people of this shift? Like, is this something that, that we're consciously choosing to, to sort of act out of different selves or is it, is it more so an unconscious process in most people, do you think? Well, one of the things that's, that's happened is since we've been working on this book and we're also looking at ourselves, is once you are aware that it is selves, it's not moods and it's not some kind of, you know, kind of knee-jerk reflex, um, you do become more conscious. And you notice when you're about to make a shift that you don't want. And there's a, there's a wonderful word, which is a hint that you just made a shift you don't want. When you say to yourself or your partner says to you, you know, you're overreacting. You know, I, I dropped the glass and it broke. But you're acting as if, you know, as if I just shot your father. And you then say, whoa, I am. Okay. That's, that's what people begin to learn when they are conscious of selves that you can pull yourself back. It's a lot harder to pull yourself back. It's a lot easier to, to stop before you fall in. But yes, indeed, people, um, because that is the way we are, people do shift, um, obviously, without, you know, without kind of a thought pattern like I just gave you. But when you start to also add consciousness to it or awareness or paying attention, you do it better, you do it sooner, and you do it smarter. And this actually might be a, a sort of an interesting way to transition. I was just sort of had the idea. I'm not sure. Does does how much of your your research or experience kind of with uh, with microdosing, which you're uh, very world renowned for uh, for your research on that, how much of that uh, sort of lends to the the awareness of these different selves, and and in, in turn the control of these different selves? Like, do you view it as a tool to potentially gain awareness of the different selves that we're acting out of? Well, 
um, probably is gonna be a longer answer than either of us want, but we're gonna go for it, which is um, the selves book, I really have put in like 25 years of thinking about it and researching it and making files. And when, I, when Jordan and I joined together to, to help me, he, he went through my files and he said, do you know you have eight outlines for a book here? And it was clear I would get to a place where I was about to put this all together and I couldn't make it work. And it was somewhat separate from my psychedelic work. Now, microdosing, which, which basically makes your system run a little better, a little more, uh, with a little more awareness, a little more inner calm, a little more equilibrium in neurochemistry, um, allows you to, to make these, these changes in cells or awareness of other people changing, um, not only easier, but kinder. And when I say kinder, it's when you see someone you care about make a, get triggered and they behave inappropriately. And they're totally unaware that they've become inappropriate. Because you're in, say you've microdose, you're in, a, you're in a, a gentler space. You can allow them to do that and perhaps gently move them out of it. So, so there, there, there isn't a kind of obvious overlap. There is for some of the, the work called integration with higher doses of psychedelics. When people are trying to literally put their selves back into the same box, um, hopefully in a little better configuration. That's when, again, an awareness of cells is helpful. Okay. And so, so going more towards the, the microdosing, so actually, and, and how I just mentioned um, before, we, before we started recording, you know, I first came across your work um, when I uh, was in my undergraduate degree uh, writing for my campus newspaper and wanted to write an article about, uh, about microdosing and saw your, your name come into place. Um, and this was, this was 2016. Um, and I know that year there was a series of different like news outlets that ran, you know, major news outlets that ran articles on microdosing. I think the New York Times, Washington Post, Fox, I think, I think there were several. Um, so tell me a little about, um, kind of how that has, has sort of, you know, I guess in the lot within the last five years kind of really gained a lot of, uh, kind of cultural attention. Well, in, in that little bunch of articles in 2016, which was started by a very short article in Wired, and then um, the media do a lot more eating off of each other's plates than I thought. So a lot of people um, decided that was a fun article to do because it was psychedelics, but it wasn't scary. And it turns out that an enormous percentage of journalists who are naturally very, very curious beings um, had psychedelic experience. So they also liked to write an article that wasn't um, kind of, you know, um, 1970s, let's scare people to death by making up stuff. So what began to happen is um, and, and I'll give you the example, because in Wired, the Wired story, which is a couple of paragraphs, it really is about one person. That's all that's really described in the article. And there's the, the implication that other people are doing it. And a few, year, a few weeks after that article, um, 
I called the, the author and, and had a question and he said, and I said, it's interesting that you, you know, you implied that there was a lot of other users, but you really didn't know that. He said, no, I had no idea. He said, but since I've written it, a lot of my friends have called and said, hey man, <laughs> I'm doing that. So it was, it was like um, the article preceded the truth, but the truth was actually there. And, and as people discovered that microdosing was not at all like high-dose psychedelics, but was personally beneficial, um, it spread probably first in the tech community and then in the, in the mental health community. And right now, um, I'll just give you two data points in terms of its, its, its kind of diffusion which is uh, we have a site called microdosingpsychedelics.com. We is my researcher and I. And people write us and, and basically there's some, some information on how to be safe and what's, what's a correct low dose and a few other bits of information. And we also say, um, or did until recently, you can also sign in and be a citizen scientist. You can let us know how it's going and you can fill out a little form every day, take you about two minutes. And you can also write us a report if your things are interesting. Well, we have reports from 51 countries. And what that says to me is microdosing is all over. And the other data point is if you go on Reddit, Reddit has what are called subedits, you know, kind of miniature of larger topics. And one subedit is called microdosing. And at the moment, that has 125,000 people on. Now, that's only people who microdose and want to talk about it. So, what we're, and, and uh, there was a recent article in a journal which looked at what people were, were looking at on YouTube for microdosing. And I think the, lead, the most viewed article on kind of how to microdose had 600,000 views. So it's out there. And the reason that it seems to be out there is it's very safe. It's not distur disturbing your belief system. There are no visions no celestial moments, no realizing that you are one with all things in creation, and no anacondas eating you alive. But you, um, you sleep better, you eat better. Um, if you're depressed, you're much less depressed. Um, people <laughs> regularly report they get better grades. So it's, it's, it's popular because it makes sense. It seems to be a very, very little risk and the, the, the benefits seem to be kind of well within people's capacity. And yes, people can overuse and make mistakes and all that. But, but more, you know, if you look at the number of people that die of water, and even more sad than ones who die of peanuts, um, psychedelics are a lot safer than a lot of things. So I know you, as, as you sort of alluded to, so you've been working, uh, how, how many years, when did you originally start kind of collecting these, these anecdotal reports of, of people's experiences microdosing? 
probably 2009 or 10, because okay. in my earlier book, The Psychedelic Explorer's Guide, there's a, there's a short chapter on microdosing, which basically says, whoa, look at this, this is odd. And here, and basically if it says, here are a few people who are reporting their experiences with microdosing. And that's pretty much where it started, which was, that was the first publication of microdosing um, that in English that we know of. There, there have been some very obscure research done in Europe, in in the after LSD was discovered, but they were not really paying attention to these very very low doses. Have there been a what what's kind of stood out to you as far as like within the data? You know, you've collected all of these different data points of, of what people are sort of subjectively experiencing. Um, what uh, what what has surprised you, um, or what sort of uh, what sort of benefits do the most amount of people report? Because um, I know, I, I think I saw one of your talks where you're sort of breaking down um, kind of the, 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 the statistics as far as what people are actually experiencing microdosing. Well, um, the people who write us are, there's two groups. There's basically people with mental or physical health issues and there are people who say, my life's working pretty well, but I wouldn't mind it working better. So uh, on our people requesting information from us are more likely to be in the mental health group because they're trying to be careful, they're trying to be safe, and whatever they've been doing for their mental or physical health either hasn't worked or hasn't worked well enough. So we have a higher percentage of people in, in, our, in our data sample who are depressed. And even though depression is, you know, kind of the number one disease on the planet, uh, we get a little bit more of it. And of the people who, have, who basically say, not only I'm depressed, but I'm what's called treatment-resistant depressed. What that means is um, I've had various pharmaceuticals, other kinds of therapy, and either they didn't work or they don't work well. So we're having, in a sense, the hard cases. And our, our, and when, when we say improvement, improvement means when someone says, I'm back, I'm myself, I have my feelings back, and I wouldn't, def I wouldn't define myself as depressed. Now we have some numbers that, that go along with that, but that's really what's important is what people report, not what people put on a checklist. And uh, what, what the way Sophia describes it, because she really is the, the data queen of, of all of this, is about 80% of the people who are microdosing for treatment resistant depression report an enormous improvement. That's huge, okay? That's our, that's, so that's our largest group. On the other hand, I'll give you our smallest group because it's, it, it, will, um, it will bother the geekies. Uh, you know, it makes no sense, okay? It makes no sense in terms of the theories we all like. Um, you are young enough to hopefully not know what shingles are. 
Shingles are, yeah, okay, I'll take your, mm, the eyeballs up, looking for it in your head. Shingles are a, uh, if you've had chicken pox as a child, it seems that the virus having done whatever it did to you as a child, kind of retreats somewhere into the body and, 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 and rests quietly for 30 or 40 years, and then decides to come back out. And I know how silly this sounds if it wasn't true. Um, and as adults, as older adults, you have what are called shingles. And shingles are usually pain, often around the mid part of the body. Um, and it can be much more serious than that. You can have little, um, little kind of updwellings in your mouth and in places we don't discuss on the air. Um, it can be awful. Now, there is a, um, an antibiotic or an equivalent that if you get it quickly, within a week or two, for most people, it's not a problem. But if you don't get that in time, or you're one of the small percentage, it's incredibly difficult, painful. And when you look up on the medical boards, you know, what do you do for it? And it says there's seven different treatments. They're all different. What you'll know is they don't know. They don't have anything that works really well. Okay, that's shingles. Okay. So I'm sitting in my, you know, in my little world where my computer screen is open to the world, and I get an email from Zambia. Now, don't worry, you don't have to find it on a map, but it's kind of in Africa, and you knew that. <laughs> okay? And that's about where I was, too. And this guy says, um, I'm... You know, I'm somebody from Zambia and I had shingles and it's been three months and I wasn't able to get treatment because I was far away from any medical facility. And I'm at the place now where there is no position that I can lie in to sleep, which isn't acutely painful. Bad shape. Now, as far as I can tell from the correspondence we had, he had no psychedelic experience. And, but he suddenly writes in this email that I had a friend at the Capitol who had some mushrooms and I took some, just a little. 45 minutes later, my pain was gone. Okay. Now, those of your audience and a number of them know that there's certain neuro neurons in the brain and there's a particular receptor and, and so forth and so on. There's nothing about chickenpox virus because that doesn't make any sense. However, and I do have a bit of a theory, but I'm not going to waste our time on it because I just made it up. Um, he's better. Well, I'm so excited because I love things that break the, the shell of our belief system and let new beliefs in. That's what science, that's where science is at its best. Well, I want to tell Sophia. Well, but she's in Prague at an international psychedelics conference uh, that we were both invited to, and, and she went and did a you know terrific job. So, but she's busy and preoccupied and not an eight hours time difference. So in a day or two, I get her and I say, blah, 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 shingles. And I'm waiting for her to say, that is so impressive. That is so interesting, you know. Subtext, wow, you're a really interesting person too because you know interesting things. She says, oh yeah, that's cool. 
And I think, wait a moment, that's not much of a reaction. She said, you'll, you'll, be, you'll be amazed at what I'm gonna tell you. At Prague, two women came up to me separately, threw their arms around me and wept and thanked us for our work. Shingles, <laughs> okay? Now, turns out it was their husbands. And in our group of several thousand uh, reports, we have about eight people uh, with shingles. So that's a range, that's a huge range that, um, that, that doesn't fit the pharmacology model. Pharmacological products like to be narrow cast. They like to be little arrows where they only affect um, or they only improve you know, the area they're supposed to. Yeah, they have a lot of side effects and that's a huge problem, but that isn't their intention. Microdosing seems to be more like a vitamin, meaning it affects all kinds of systems in all kinds of ways in a in seemingly a more general way. So it's pretty hard to put depression and shingles into the same box. And um, we are looking to researchers who uh, are better at that to make a convincing case. So do you think that it was uh, the sort of, well, I guess in, in this case, uh, psilocybin, was it sort of modulating the immune system or, or do you think it was more so um, kind of affecting, affecting the perception of pain that, that was resulting from this? Well. <laughs> or maybe both, chicken or the egg? Well, uh, I, I corresponded with a guy in Zambia and he indicated that, um, that when he felt the, the kind of precursor of the pain, he would take a microdose. So it hadn't left. I mean, it didn't, it didn't like, you know, it didn't take the virus's little heads off. Um, and we know they don't have heads, okay. Uh, but it didn't, it didn't break their molecular structure as far as we know. But it somehow allowed his body to work in a way that it hadn't been able to work before. So in that sense, we can generalize and say that's the same as depression. If depression is, and it certainly is in part, um, a biochemical imbalance, then something that balances the whole system will perhaps balance that part of the brain as well. Something that rebalances the whole system will allow the system to deal with the pain of shingles in a more effective way. So um, you're kind of immediately slipping into what seemed to me perfectly reasonable theory, and I'm deliberately avoiding that, okay? Right. Because what I've learned is um, one of the things that, uh, I have a PhD in psychology, and I uh, did some work at the Veterans Hospital as a graduate student working with wonderfully charming, uh, literate, crazy people. And one of them said to me, hey, hey, Dr. Federman, you know what PhD means? And I say, no, Ed, what does it mean? It means piled higher and deeper. And I thought, that's a very, very you know, sophisticated observation. And I'm, I'm shy of theory. Uh, also, there are people who love theory. And um, I love, you know, I'm very, I, I would, I, yes, I would let my daughter marry one. Okay. Um, 
but it's just not, I, I'm so much more interested in, in, in events and in moments and, you know, like the theory behind shingles, I'm sure is fascinating, but nobody was going to make up a theory until we had some data. So I'll give you, I'll give you the, the kind of opposite, which is um, when you go to microdosingpsychedelics.com, there's a, a question of, are there people who shouldn't microdose? And it's a very short list. People whose first symptom is anxiety, and that's all they have. They don't, they're not depressed and anxious, which most depressed people are. They're just anxious. It doesn't seem to work well. But the one that's interesting is people with red-green colorblindness. When they microdose, they tend to have what are called tracers. And tracers are something that people who take high doses all know about. Tracer is when you look at a light source, I've got some lights up here, and if I move my eyes away, now there's no, I don't see those lights. But if I have tracers, there'll be a little string of tracer of light. That's a tracer. And what they say, these red-green people, because we have a number of them, they say it's really irritating. And it lasts for days. So we've, we've suggested they shouldn't do that. Now, the reason we have some evidence is we have people who said, yeah, I, I read your, your suggestion not to do it if you have red-green, but I do. And, you know, the benefits are worth it. And, yeah, I have tracers. But, see, that's a wonderful theoretical question. Why would people with red-green colorblindness, which means they have some cells that aren't functioning or not even present genetically. What's going on? Now, as I say, I'm not that excited by theory, but for, for people who really want to think hard, that's my gift to you. All right. Well, yeah, definitely comment if you have any ideas on that, um, please. So, uh, Jim, what do you what do you think as far as you know, with with what you've seen, kind of the the, the history of the field of, of psychedelics, you know, microdosing as well. Um, where do you sort of see uh, see the future going? Because obviously we're getting close, uh, relatively close to a point where where some of these things are going to become legalized or at least decriminalized as as they already are um, in certain areas of the world. Um, so, and also, uh, research laboratories, uh, kind of increasing their, uh, their studying of these substances, like the, the new John Hopkins center. So where, where do you sort of see microdosing or just psychedelic use in general? Where do you, where do you see the future of it going? Well, if we go back a step to what was going on when psychedelic research was made for all intents and purposes, totally illegal. That, and, and Schedule 1 is defined as no, medic, no medical use and high possibility of addiction. Okay, bad drug. That's what Schedule 1 is supposed to mean. It also means anything else the government puts in there with no evidence whatsoever. When they made psychedelics Schedule 1 in the United States, it was the single most psychiatric drug, it was the single most drug researched in the world. 
most psychiatric when I as a graduate student got into this field and I wrote Sandoz Pharmaceuticals kind of a little naive letter saying do you have any information that would help me uh, understand more about psychedelics and I got these two giant notebooks and they were abstracts they weren't the articles they were the abstracts of the first thousand articles so there was an enormous field of excitement and it led to what we now would call neurochemistry because LSD is very close to serotonin and that be, because LSD had been discovered there was a sudden interest in what was going on chemically in the brain so it's actually the it started a huge field which it couldn't participate in okay now we we skip over the 40 years in the desert to now, <clears throat> and it's very quickly becoming researched in a number of places. And there's a, um, a graduate student listserv, which is open only to graduate students in any field, medical, psychological, whatever, who have made a visible overt commitment to working with psychedelics. So it's people who've come out in their institutions or in their training or whatever. But it's only at the graduate student level. It has over a thousand students from maybe 15 disciplines who are saying to each other, in essence, how do I get a job? Where can I get an internship? Uh, what graduate schools do you think will work best <clears throat> for my particular interest in psychedelics? What have you heard about such and such? Um, and little subgroups are forming and little groups helping each other. And it's, it's a very cooperative group. Someone writes, I'm looking for this very obscure article and my university library can't find it. And like three different people from three different countries say, I just sent it to you. So there's a, a, a kind of camaraderie of this emerging generation of psychedelic researchers. And I know people in a dozen institutions who are also getting permission to do psychedelic research, even if their institution still, has a, um, still hasn't begun to work on it. So it's, it's, that's, that's the, the research and student side. And the, the other side of the future is there are companies forming um, kind of like, uh, like mice breed, uh, of little companies who say, we are going to do the breakthrough research in X psychedelic or in a, a new version of the molecule, which means you can patent it and make a lot of money, um, or a new technique. Uh, there's one company that says, we're developing a method where instead of having to take a capsule of mushroom, you can take a little kind of a little sliver of something that dissolves on your tongue i know like a like a gumdrop um i admit that you're hearing in my tone that this doesn't feel like much of a breakthrough to me but what they're saying is it can be precisely measured and um, physicians and researchers um, really love precisely measured whether it's important or not um, so there's a there's a lot of money suddenly pouring into real research a lot of money pouring into um, kind of uh, commercial beginnings of research 
and a lot of money being kind of hustled by people that say, we're about to make a great discovery or a great use. Um, there's a company that says we're going to make, uh, and a number of these companies are saying we're, we're also working with microdoses. Now, the actual published research on microdoses is way behind the promises that these companies are making. So um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a term in the marijuana world from maybe a year or two or three ago called it was the Wild West. Well, curiously, what we didn't really think about in our many years of not being able to do research is that the commercialization of psychedelics would rush ahead of the research. And that's what's happening now. Interesting. Well, it should be fascinating to see, you know, kind of what, where, where it ends up going in the future. Um, we're coming up onto the end of the show. Um, Jim, it was an honor getting to have this discussion and having you on today. Uh, if people are, are interested in hearing more about your work or, or want to get a copy of your Symphony of Selves, uh, where would you direct them to? Well, Symphony of Selves, as we say, is wherever books are sold. And we know what mainly that means. But yes, um, it's easy to get in Amazon. And I've, I've written a lot of books. One, and I've even written a self-help book that's not too bad. But all of those books, when you read a self-help book, it, at the end of it, you're supposed to do stuff. Make lists, make affirmations, do more exercise, you know, eat carrots, whatever it is. The fascinating thing to me is what we're getting from people reading Symphony of Selves is in the reading of it, your ideas start to shift. So there isn't a to-do. There is, we have a few chapters of to-dos in the way back but you gotta read, read a lot to get there. In the front, it just says, wait a moment, have you ever noticed, says I said, like when you argue with yourself. I think the parallel in terms of suddenly seeing the world more clearly, it's if you needed glasses and then you suddenly get them and suddenly things are actually clear and you realize around you, everyone else had been seeing it. So that, that's one of the metaphors. The, the other is, and this goes back to when you were much younger, there was a time in your life when the idea that some human being would put their tongue in your mouth, disgusting. And then something happened as your hormones shifted and you, for most of us at least, you thought, you know, that's, that's, that's actually kind of nice. And you suddenly understood what a lot of people were interested in, where a year ago, you had no idea what they were talking about. So um, reading the book is a kind of like a very quick maturation in a very important area. Um, and I'm, I'm blown away because I've, you know, I've written books, I teach books, I review books, I've edited books, but I've never really dealt with the fact that when you just simply shift your ideas through reading a few chapters of a book that it's like getting a better pair of glasses. So that's, now I want, we're, we're clear, that's kind of pure info commercial, but also I wouldn't have said it before the book was out because we didn't know that would be what would be happening. We thought people would be very interested and eventually begin to, to work with it, but it, it, it has this very curious effect. Well, you know, what, what I can say about that is, you know, it, it, it certainly presents these ideas that 
that I haven't necessarily read over and over and over. You know, I think a lot of sort of these books that, you know, it's like pop psychology, which I don't, I don't know if you'd necessarily call that uh, this book within that category, but a lot of, a lot of those kind of books, they kind of get repetitive as far as the themes and, and what I think, you know, your symphony of cells does so well is, is present all of these, you know, some of these brand new ideas to a lot of people. And then as you're saying, and as we kind of talked about today, kind of giving numerous illustrations within all of these different fields and disciplines, um, along with just historical evidence to, to back it up. I think it really makes a really strong case for, for kind of the theory that you're, uh, well, that you're suggesting here. Well, it, we wrote it up in a, in a very presentable way, but we also quote Plato and St. Augustine and Freud and Jung and neuroscientists who were studying the various parts of the brain. So uh, we're popularizers, which is a different pop than pop psychology, in that we're making accessible a huge amount of work that's been done literally for thousands of years. So this isn't new, but it is as we do, which it's newly packaged in a very acceptable way. Got it. Well, if you guys enjoyed the show today, go ahead and like and subscribe to our YouTube channel. We're Roscoe's Wetsuit. And you can also find audio versions of the podcast available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and just about wherever you can listen to audio podcasts. Right. So, Jim, again, it was, it was such an honor getting to have you on the show today. Um, thank you so much. Well, thanks, Toby. This was really great for me. Awesome. All right.